0: Would you pray with me? Lord, we sing to you, we praise your name. Each day, proclaiming the good news that you save. Publishing your glorious deeds among the nations. Telling everyone about the amazing things that you do. Great are you, Lord. Lord. You are most worthy of our praise. You are to be feared above all gods. The gods of other nations are but idols, but you made the heavens. Honor and majesty surround you. Strength and beauty fill your sanctuary. O nations of the world, recognize the Lord. Recognize that he's glorious and strong. Give to him the glory he deserves. Bring your offering and come to, into his courts. Worship the Lord in all his holy splendor. Let all the earth tremble before you. Father, we are but small ants in the universe that you have made. And yet you have summoned ants to declare your glories to the nations. And we pray... For that strength and that power to do so. Speak to us today by your Holy Spirit and by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I have a question for you this morning. I'd like you to ponder. What would you say is the main mission in your life? What is your main mission in life? And by that I mean the main thing that you want to accomplish in life and for whom? What is your main mission in your in life? Now follow up question. What do you think God's mission is? And are the two the same? Your main mission? His main mission? Are they the same? We start a new uh, sermon series today. In three weeks from today, we're going to have our mission conference here at Keystone. And we're going to look to the east, to the second largest country in Africa, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And our speaker is probably traveling further than we've had a mission speaker travel before. She's coming from the Congo. Uh, Rachel Balia is an Anglo who is married to a Congolese, and she's lived in the Congo for many, many years. Uh, she's also part of a uh, ministry that our denomination has called Global Fingerprints. It's a um, child sponsorship ministry, like, much like Compassion International. And uh, she's going to speak that morning about how you can be involved in uh, helping change the lives of some Congolese children. Um, but also to tell you what the country is like, and um, be what God might even be calling some of us to get more involved in. And it's kind of exciting to have somebody like that uh, come and share about the land we have been. God's been connecting us with the Congo here the last number of years. Uh, with Rachel and Poppy Bunketti and their family have come. About seven years ago and uh, part of our congregation and about a year ago, another refugee family came that uh, we have a a team from from Keystone that's helping resettle here in Lancaster, uh, Salima and her family. And for the weeks on the run-up to that mission conference, we want to talk about God's mission, a series I'm calling Many Disciples, One Mission. Now, uh, we have a lot of folks here that would say, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, if we sat into, in small groups and we uh, talked about <clears throat> excuse me, the different gifts that we have and the different things that we're really impassioned about, my guess is that we would be all over the map. Uh, one person has a, a gift of serving and one person has a gift of leadership and another person has a gift of teaching and another person has a gift of, of music and other people have gifts of, uh, of administration and on and on and on and on. Different gifts. And we have different passions, um, actually, the head of Global Fingerprints, uh, he and I were emailing back and forth this week. And he, he said, I, I'd like to take you along to the Congo in, uh, in August. And I'm like, ah, get to go overseas again. That's awesome. But I said, you know, that's really, a, it's a bad use of money because that's not ultimately where my heart is. He says, where is your heart? I said, Muslims, that's, that's, that's the passion that God has given me other people have other passions they you know they have a passion to minister to the poor or they have a passion to to dig wells and so forth there's a lot of passions my guess represented among the people here who follow Jesus and a lot of diverse gifts but what is the mission of God what is the mission of God is it food distribution is it digging wells? Is it building schools and educating children? Is it building hospitals and clinics and taking care of the physical needs of people? Is it Bible translation? Stephen Neal, who's a <clears throat> excuse me, a Scottish missionary to India back in the last century, made the observation: when everything is mission, nothing is mission. When everything qualifies as mission, Nothing is mission. We lose sight of what mission really is. And I want to read for you from Isaiah chapter 45. If you have a Bible with you, turn to that. Isaiah chapter 45. And let's let God describe or define his mission. 45, beginning at <clears throat> verse 22. Hmm, somebody was drinking out of my water. That's not as full as it should be. As long as you didn't spit in it, it's okay. Isaiah 45, verse 22. <clears throat> Let all the world look to me for salvation, God says. For I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by my own name, I have spoken the truth, and I will never go back on my word, colon, He's building up to what he wants to say. And he's, here's, the, here's, the, here's the backup to what I'm about to say. I've sworn by my own name. I've spoken the truth. I'll never go back on my word. That's why you can count on what I'm about to say coming to pass. Every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to me. Every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to me. What is the mission of God? To see all people worship God. To make all people become worshipers of God. In our mission leadership team, we define it this way. God is glorifying himself by redeeming worshipers from every tribe, language, and people group. God's mission is to see all people worship him. Uh, if you've never read the book, Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper, you should read it. Uh, I, I think every Christian home should have a copy on their shelves. There's, it's, it's like the, the primer for uh, missions. And the third sentence in that book is the most often quoted um, line from that book. It says, John says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. When we get to heaven, there will be no more missions. There will be no more raising up of missionaries and funding them and praying for them and sending them out. It will be over. Why? Because all in heaven will be worshipers. Missions exist because worship doesn't. I have two main points this morning. The first one is that God seeks the worship of everyone. God seeks the worship of everyone. And let me read for you Romans chapter uh, 11, verse 36. This is why. For everyone, everything comes from God and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. You came from God. You exist by his power. You, if God withdrew his sustaining power, uh, how many of you saw the last Avengers movie? You can confess it here. All right. Me, just me and Cohen. Um, at the end of the movie, a bunch of the Avengers simply whew, turn to ash. They, they just disappear. If God withdrew his sustaining power from you and I, that's what would happen to us. He, um, everything comes from him. You and I came from him. We exist by his power, and we are intended for his glory like everything else god seeks the worship of everyone because he is worthy and listen if i were to say i want you folks to worship me if you were to say even to your family members i want you to worship me we'd look you know we'd look and go huh why would i do that if a father said that to his children like why would i worship you 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 make a lot of mistakes dad why would you worship me? I make a ton of mistakes. But God is worthy of all our praise. He is the most glorious being in the universe. He's made the entire universe. He's made all of us. He's sought us out. We'll get to that. That's my second point. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Describes the worthiness of God. So you are worthy of O Lord our God to receive glory and honor and power why for you created all things and they exist because you created what you please are you are you getting the understanding and the idea that we and everything else exists for the glory of God He made us not just so we could have a wonderful life, not so we could have a comfortable life, so that we could have a problem-free life, not just so we could have a wonderful time with our family and enjoying great vacations. He made us for his glory. He made us and he made all people to be worshipers. He's the one who provides blessings for us. He's the one who uh, shows mercy to us by withholding what is rightfully judgment on our lives. He is the one who... who, uh, Extends the grace of a Savior to undeserving sinners like us. He is the one who loved us first. And he is worthy of our worship. God's love for us merits worship. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. Bouncing around. If you don't have your Bible open, it would be a good time to get it open and just start paging with me. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. This is the manifestation of his love. He's rescued us from disaster and put us in a safe and glorious place. God's love merits worship. I would even argue that God's judgment merits worship. If you go back to the story of Noah, Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 8, God says they looked around at all of mankind, and he saw how rebellious they were. Do you ever think about how many people were on planet Earth before the flood? In my mind, I always thought, maybe a couple hundred thousand. And I did some research this week. There are some Christians who have done some work based on the information that we have in Genesis... Uh, the number of children that families often had, and the um, lifespan that people had before the flood. If you go back to Genesis 5, you find people living to be 800, 900, nine, uh, almost a thousand years. And, and so you can see how the numbers would grow expone- exponentially. Projections have been made somewhere in the neighborhood of 4 to 17 billion people, I think, might have been on the earth before the flood. Now, even if it's just four, you think about the population today. Seven and a half billion people today. You think, this is a very populated earth. But before the flood, it could have been that many people. And God wiped them all out except eight. All of them. Except eight. Why? Why would God do that? People today who are on the outside of the Christian church looking in say, why does your God insist on having worshipers from from every custom and every ethnic group? And, and, and why can't he be satisfied with a group of people in Keystone Church in Paradise and Grace Point Church in Paradise and Calvary Monument and, and, and Christian churches all over the country and all over the world? Why can't, why can't he be satisfied with the 2.3 billion Christians he has worshiping him why does he, why do you have to go and disrupt other people and why do why does he have to disturb other people because god made all of us and he made all of them and he has a right to their worship even in judgment he is declaring his right to be worshiped god seeks the worship of everyone Now, it would be one thing if he'd simply say, I'm going to judge you until you become my worshipers. And yet God became a missionary himself. You ever think about that? God became a missionary himself. He crossed cultural, ethnic, language, and geographical boundaries. He came from heaven to earth. in the person of his son, Jesus ephesians four says that he um, descended to the lowly places, and some have taught that means he descended into hell i uh, don 't think that 's at all what he means. the scripture means it means that he descended from heaven to earth, he came from the upper places to the lower places. Ultimate missionary so I have the title of this message is God is a missionary God. He seeks the worship of everyone, and in order to accomplish that he became. A missionary himself. The, this is my second point this morning. The missionary God seeks out worshipers. That's so important in the coming two weeks as we think about us going out into our communities next week. And the following week, think about us as the church universal going out into the world to all people to seek them to become worshipers of the true living God. The missionary God himself seeks out worshipers i need going to turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. Interesting prayer there. 1 Kings chapter 8. How many of you have been to, uh, to Israel? Oh, quite a number of you. So if you've gone to the Wailing Wall, you have seen a couple of stones. Of course, um, uh, even Herod's temple is not standing, let alone Solomon's temple temple but there are a couple of stones at way down that are part yet of solomon's temple and and they're massive are they not they're huge gigantic stones and you wonder how in the world did they get them from the quarry uh to the temple mount and if you read the text you know that they didn't do any kind of machining on site so those those stones were milled back the quarry well, Solomon has finished this massive temple. It took him seven years to build. One hundred eighty-four thousand workers built it—craftsmen and tradesmen and, and just common laborers—and now this magnificent edifice stands here. Some of which uh, some people think that should have been on the list of uh, um, wonders of the ancient seven wonders of the ancient world didn't quite make the list. But uh, Solomon is looking to this magnificent temple and he begins to pray. And you see him in, in the early part of the chapter, he's praying for Israel. He says, God, when, when your people violate, uh, violate your laws and we lose in battle because we have rebelled against you, and when we cry out to this temple, please forgive us. And when famine strikes the land and you close up the clouds and it doesn't rain, and we're hungry because we've rebelled against you and we cry out to you at this place, please forgive us and hear us. And he goes on and on about his people Israel. And all of a sudden you get to verse 41 and there's a shift. And this is what Solomon prays. In the future, foreigners who do not belong to your people Israel will hear of you. And they will come from distant lands because of your name. For they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your powerful arm. And when they pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven where you live... And grant what they ask of you. In this way, all the people of the earth will come to know and fear you just as your own people Israel do. And they too will know that this temple I have built honors your name. You see this constant reference to the name of God. The name, the name. All of the the name. The people understood the name to be intrinsic to the character of the person. So they would name a child based on what kind of child they'd want him to grow up to be. And God's name reflects his character and who he is and, and what he's about and, and what he treasures and what he despises. They, the name. This building is going to represent your name. And when foreigners come, when they hear about you, when they cry out to you, answer their prayer. Now here's what I want you to see. The passive nature of Solomon's mission. There's no going out. There's no sending anybody out to get these foreigners to come. It's, Lord, if they come, or hopefully they'll come, and when they do pray to you before this temple, answer them. Now, his prayer was never realized. We see no massive turning of, uh, of foreigners coming to, to Jerusalem and praying at this temple like he, Solomon hoped they would. There's, there's really uh, very few Gentiles in the Old Testament that are turning to Israel's God. Most of the ones that are referenced happened, uh, they came to faith before Solomon's day, before this prayer was prayed. We know of uh, Ruth, for example, that married Boaz. She was a Midianite in the line of Christ. We know of Rahab, uh, the prostitute in Jericho, also in the line of Christ. She was a Canaanite. Um, we, we know about Naaman, um, who did come after Solomon. Naaman was an Aramaic general who came to be healed and, and became a, a believer in the one true living God. Queen of Sheba came during Solomon's reign, and she saw the temple and she was impressed and impressed by his God, but didn't become a follower, didn't become a believer. This prayer, not realized. And even David's longing for the nations to know about the one true and living God to hear about his fame, the prayer that I prayed at the beginning was from Psalm 96, prayer of David, for the nations to hear about God and to follow him. Israel just never had a mission mindset. We have no missionaries referred to in the Old Testament except Jonah, and he was a bad missionary. And yet this was not how God intended it to be for Israel. Solomon had a passive mission, but God sent Jesus Christ on an active mission because the solution that he meant to come to the world was a solution that was to come through Israel. Let me take you to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, if I would say uh, uh, the Great Commission, how many of you would know what I mean by, just by that phrase, Great Commission? Um, anybody tell me what one of the texts would be from the New Testament that speaks about the Great Commission? You can talk here. Matthew? 28. There we got it. Matthew 28 uh, 18 to, uh, 18 to, uh, to 20 and there's a couple of other texts in some of the other Gospels as well. This is the Great Commission of the Old Testament. In fact, This is even more important, Great Commission, because it comes before, and it points to what God intended all along. Genesis chapter 12 is the calling of Abraham. He's called Abraham to leave his people, leave his family, and and to uh, even leave his father's gods and to go where God's going to tell him. And this is what God has in store for him. Genesis 12.1, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. And here's what he's going to do with him. I will make you into a great nation. Now, that wasn't always true. I mean, Israel had its glory days, but after it got sent to Babylon, you know, it went downhill and it pretty much was a non-factor until 1948. But now it's famous again. I will make you into a great nation. In other words, all the descendants of yours, Abraham. I will bless you and I'll make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. Now he's talking about non-Jews. He goes on. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth, again, non-Jews. All the families, not just Jews, will be blessed through you. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. That one day, Abraham, you're going to have a descendant that's going to bless all the families of all the nations, of all the worlds. See, way back in Genesis chapter 12, God intended that worshipers would be universal, that worshipers would come from every tribe and every language and every nation, the world over. And the missionary God is going to seek them out. It's interesting. You go back to Galatians if you want to. If you're jotting notes down, uh, cross-reference this text with Galatians three eight nine because Paul quotes this text there, and he says that this was God's early pronouncement of the gospel to Abraham. And so we understand that, that this is, he was talking about Jesus and that Jesus is going to have an active mission to the world. He's going to come and cross all these boundaries and come to the world. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. God showed how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. This is the real love. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. You see that sending word twice in that text He sent, He sent, He sent. That's the kind of mission that God had in mind. That people would be sent. To make worshipers of all nations, of people from everywhere. And the sending often requires crossing some boundaries. And so Jesus lived in heaven with his father. He had no body. But those that he was sent to did have bodies. And so he took on a body. Jesus lived in heaven not mingling with sinners at all. He had fellowship with the father and the spirit and the holy angels. That's who he hung around with. He didn't mingle with sinners. But he came to this earth, and now he's mingling with all kinds of sinners. In fact, that's all he's mingling with. He was in heaven, holy with the Father, not sinful in any way, shape, or form. And yet, when he came to earth, he didn't sin himself. But as we're going to see in just a couple of minutes, he became sin for us. Most of you heard the news story back in November of a young man, 26 years old, by the name of John Chow. And John Chow, for 10 years, had read about a small, virtually unknown island east of India uh, called the Sentinel Islands, part of the Andaman chain. And he knew that there was a primitive people group there who had been uh, kept from outsiders, even by the Indian government. They had said, you're not allowed to go there you're, we don't want to risk them getting contaminated by any modern viruses and so forth. We want you just to leave those people alone. And yet John Chow, as a follower of Jesus, had, had just a vision in his mind of reaching this, this, these people for Jesus. And he had talked about it, he planned for it. He was part of a, a mission organization. He was determined to go and reach these people. And so he rented a, a boat, And got a couple of fishermen to take him in one day. And what he did, he was greeted with a hail of arrows. And one of the arrows pierced the Bible that he was holding in front of him. He retreated, went back, back, came back another day. And this time when he went on shore and he's crying out. I, I think I read somewhere that he was praying for the gift of tongues. Because he didn't know what their language was or how to speak it. And he was crying out for them, Jesus loves you, I love you. And they filled him with arrows. And an international discussion came out of that. The likes of which we haven't seen since 1956. And the death of the five uh, missionaries in Ecuador. The discussion being, should Christians go into other parts of the world and try to make worshipers for God, for their God? What's interesting about the debate that ensued following his death is that back in 1956 when Jim Elliott and the others were killed, the debate uh, went this way. So all of the Christians were on one side saying, yes, we should do this, and all the non-Christians were on the other side saying, no, you shouldn't do this. The debate today is no longer that way. On this side are non-Christians and some professing Christians. Listen to an Episcopal, <clears throat> Episcopal priest responding to that uh, incident. He says, The biblical language of make disciples of all nations is tremendously unpopular among mainline Protestants and rare among Catholics. Now the text that you referred to, Matthew 28, 18, 19, 20, that's the, where that language comes from. Make disciples of all nations. And here we have an Episcopal priest, uh, supposedly a Christian priest, saying that's unpopular. That idea is unpopular among mainline Protestants and rare among Catholics. This from a professor uh, of religious studies, communication studies at University of Iowa. She said, within contemporary Christianity, there are many Christians who do not participate or advocate for mission work. There are Christians who understand there to be many right ways to live and many forms of truth, including non-Christian ones. These are increasing um, number of... There are increasing number of voices within Christianity that are saying we should not be trying to make worshipers of all people of all nations. And the question for us is not what... Not What do what the voices around us say? But what does God say? What does God say? And make no mistake about it. If we conclude that we are not to make disciples of the nations, we will stop making disciples in this nation as well. Unless we believe that God is a missionary God and calls his people to be a mission, uh, people on mission, we will simply stop making disciples in this nation as well. It was interesting, underneath the NBC video of this news event, I was reading down through the uh, the comment section, and there was a man there by the name of Rahul Ray who asked this question. Why are these Westerners always obsessed with conversion, meaning making worshipers out of other people? Why are these Westerners, I assume he's not American, always always obsessed with conversion? And here's the answer to that question. Because we worship a missionary God who not only went to sinful people to urge them to become worshipers, but who actually became sinful so that we could become worshipers. Second Corinthians chapter 5 what I alluded to earlier. Verse 21. And you've got this up. I'm not going to read it out here because the NLT misses something. For our sake, this is the ESV. For our sake, he made him to be sin. The NLT says he, he paid the price for our sin, that he came and, and took care of our sin. But the text says he became Sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus became sin even though he had never sinned himself so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If Jesus came all the way from heaven, left his throne and his scepter behind to come and live among us in the way we lived and to become like us in every way except as a sinner so that he could die for us, Would it not be that those of us who follow him would be called to have the same kind of mission intention, the same kind of mission passion, the same kind of mission zeal, and be on the mission that God is on ourselves? Last text I want to share with you, John chapter 20, verse 21. John chapter 20. Verse 21, this is one of the last times Jesus sat with his disciples. If God is a missionary God, what are his people to do? If Christ is the ultimate missionary, what are his followers to do? And this is the answer Jesus gave. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You would you say that with me? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. One more time: As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. There is not a follower of Jesus Christ here who is excluded from that. That doesn't mean you pack up and that you go to the North Sentinel Islands or to India or to Pakistan or to Bangladesh or to Argentina. It does mean that all of us are on mission. So again, I ask the question, what is your mission? And then secondly, is it the same as God's mission? Let's pray together. Father, as I look back at my life these six and a half decades, Um, even the four that I have been a disciple of Jesus, I see how often my little missions have encroached on your mission. Or even worse, how often they have replaced your mission. And I can see, sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Hearing that from the Son of God himself. Why 11 men turned the world upside down. And yet, whether or not we have sat at your feet literally and bodily, you have said the same thing to us. We want those of us who have families. We want we want to see our children grow up to be um, good, healthy, functioning citizens in our nation. We want them to be self-supporting. We want them to uh, not have a criminal record. We want them to be people that others can admire. We want to have happy marriages. We want to be able to enjoy the the warmth of our husbands and wives and to be able to, um, to be content at home. We want to make enough money that we don't have to worry about how to make ends meet and so that we can enjoy a lot of fun things. If we're single, we want to find someone that we can spend a life with If we have a poor self-image, we probably want to become good at something, good enough that other people will be impressed. We have a lot of small missions. Oh God, I plead with you to turn by your grace our small missions into means of serving your big mission. To make worshipers of all people. To see in the sending of your son, not just something that gives us a ticket to heaven, but gives us a charge to carry out, a call to fulfill, a life to live, a mission to be on. For your glory, because you are worthy of our worship and you are worthy of the world's worship even those who have not yet heard the good news. You're worthy of the worship of Frank and Joe and Heather and Sharon that we work next to. The kids on our team at school, our neighbors, cousin Ricky. And there are people in our lives that the best we can do is to fight for a picnic or talk about the Jets' latest draft pick. And yet they're not worshipers. The people that we work with day in and day out, rub shoulders with, some of them are not worshipers. And we don't want to pull down the wrath of proper societal etiquette these days and say something offensive and religious. Perhaps we've simply allowed ourselves to be shaped by the climate instead of the one who came all the way from heaven. Seek us out. And so for these weeks, Lord, would you make our hearts pliable, open, receptive, attentive to what your spirit might want to say to each of us. For any adjustments that he might have for us. That we'd not worry about what anyone else is hearing from you. But what you want to say to me. In Jesus' name, amen.